Hello, welcome to Translating the World with Rainer Schulte. Dr. Rainer Schulte is Endowed Professor of Arts and Humanities, the Founder and Director of the Center for Translation Studies at the University of Texas at Dallas, and the Editor of Translation Review. I am Sarah Valente, Visiting Assistant Professor at the University of Texas at Dallas and host for today's episode, and I would like to welcome you to the second episode of this podcast. I'm delighted to introduce our special guest for today, Dr. Ellen Elias Bursak. Ellen is one of the most prominent translators of Bosnian, Croatian, and Serbian of our time. She has had an extensive career as translator of novels and nonfiction, as well as being a language and translation instructor. She was the language preceptor for Bosnian, Croatian, and Serbian at the Slavic Department at Harvard University. She has taught at Tufts University, ASU, at Zagreb University, and most recently at the New England Friends of Bosnia and Herzegovina. Ellen has had quite a number of translations over the years. Her well-known translation of David Albahari's novel Guts and Meyer is one of the more outstanding that came into the picture in recent years and has had a really great impact in the United States. Ellen is now the president of the American Literary Translators Association, ALTA, which was hosted at the University of Texas at Dallas for 30 years. And we're so honored to have her with us here today. Hi, Ellen. We're happy to welcome you to the podcast. Thank you for being here with us today. Hello. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Uh, lovely to see you. Very nice to see you. So, Ellen, you have had a long and successful career as a literary translator. Why don't we actually start discussing from the beginning, you know, your views in translation over the years? How has your involvement with translation um, changed over the years in your practice as well? Well, when I started translating, I was living in Croatia, in Yugoslavia at the time. Uh, I married there, my children were born there, and I'm from the States, but I was living there. And so during that time, I was a community translator. I was translating whatever came through the door. I always like to uh, mention that one of my fun jobs was tutoring one of the singers competing in the Eurovision Song Contest for his pronunciation of English when he recorded the song that he competed with. And he did come in fourth, so I felt that was a success. <laughs> uh, but I just did many things, all sorts of things, for museums, for professors giving their talks abroad, for the World Bank projects building highways, I don't know, all kinds of things. And uh, that for a long time, I was about 15 years, I was doing that kind of work. And then we moved to the States in 1990, just before the war broke out in Yugoslavia. And I began teaching a few years later at Harvard. And during that time, I began working on literary translations in specific. Work I'd been doing before were short projects, quick deadlines, mm -hmm. things people needed for everyday use. And this was really very different, working long-term literary projects. But I enjoyed getting away from the sort of um, short deadline pressures and, and having time to focus on on projects. Very interesting. And so I actually first became familiar with your work when I had Guts and Meyer a few years ago. And 
you know, I was really taken by that storyline. It was, I think, one of the first fiction novel that I read about that time of, of the Holocaust. And then most recently, one of your last translations that I became really familiar with is Noemi Jaffe's What Are the Blind Men Dreaming? Because part of that is in Portuguese, and Portuguese is my language. Yes. And so... Uh -huh. And so both these novels, in my mind, there is a clear correlation between the topics and, you know, seeking to um, speak to the significance of the Holocaust as well as memory and bearing witness. And so I, I really wanted to maybe touch on this idea of how do you as the translator select the works? Is there something specific about these shoes that you see like a, a over arc of all your literary works? Or is this, do you see your work as a translator as being a witness to something? Well, uh in both of those cases, those particular cases, Goetz and Meyer and uh, what, what are the blind men dreaming, I was asked to translate those books by the publishers who proposed them. And in the first case, it was McElhose Press in London. And, and Christopher McElhose and I had been talking about, we, we'd been tossing back and forth ideas of, of authors we might translate. And he was interested in David Albahari and he liked that particular novel of David Abahari's because precisely because it uh, is about the Holocaust, so it's of a broader frame of reference. And uh, and then for the other one, the piece that I translated was a diary written by what, what at the time was a very young woman. I think she just recently died, actually, of uh, a young woman who was in her teens when she uh, was interned in in a series of camps including Auschwitz towards the end. And she was only, I think, 16 or 17, and she kept a diary. And, and it was a handwritten diary, and that was what I translated. And, and there's an interesting difference between the two, which I think highlights something about Goetz and Meyer, which is important to keep in mind, which I think of it as the best work I've ever read. Of course, I'm, I'm objective <laughs> uh, about... Uh, inherit a second generation trauma the trauma of the trauma of the children of survivors of the holocaust so they've 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 only heard about it from their parents and that's what that whole novel is about is him imagining the holocaust and imagining these two ss officers guts and meyer and 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 i just found that fascinating of course it's relevant to my because that's i'm i'm of the baby generation and that is definitely our generation is 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 of the children of Holocaust survivors rather than the people who actually experienced the Holocaust. And in a sense, what the blind man dreaming has that dimension as well, because her daughter has a whole section of her indeed imagining the Holocaust through her mother's diary material in her novel, her mother's experience. So there's a generational piece that both of those have. Mm -hmm. I should add that uh, Sarah is a specialist in Holocaust studies. She works with the Ackermann Center and also teaches uh, seminars in that direction. And we have a very strong backbone with the Ackermann Center and the Holocaust Center at UTD. And Sarah is one of the major figures in that area. And that's why uh, She's also very much interested in books like Goetz and Meyer, etc. I thought that the Goetz and Meyer, which I used in one of my seminars, one of the most successful studies for students to understand the atmosphere, not so necessarily all the details, but they got a feeling for the atmosphere. 
Al-Bahari creates the atmosphere of what these people were going through, through the eyes of obviously the writer who was extremely familiar with how to create that atmosphere. Uh, and it flows because there's very little division within the novel. It just flows from the first page to the last page. And each time what is particularly important for me uh, that I have pointed out are the moments of silence that are in that novel. And you have Thank these you. two, yeah. You have these two people sitting up front and just talking as if nothing was happening, and the real catastrophe was happening in the back of the trunk. And then also the nonchalance with which all of this was dealt with, and that creates another tension really between the writer and the reader. And I thought this was very well done, also in the translation. Well, I'm so glad to hear people reading it and using it. I think it's an amazing, it's an amazing novel. Yes, and it's on it's all of my on my reading list uh, for uh, 20th century uh, international literature. So it's also important to say because there was this terrible war in Yugoslavia, yes. that war really has been the underpinning of almost everything I've translated and of recent writing, obviously and. Uh, different aspects, but it's also true that Al-Bahari was using his dip into the Second World War material in order to talk about the war in yes. Yugoslavia as well. And for me, it's particularly also, what I should say, a little emotional because I lived through the disaster of the after war. Mm. And uh, right now with the pandemic, you get more images and memories coming back from those moments. and. The problem was that at that time in Germany, nobody was talking about Auschwitz. That's the disaster that came afterwards. And novels mm -hmm. like Al-Bahari's novel, they made sure we better begin to think about what happened. Because I went through high school, there was never one word said about Auschwitz. Wow. And that's catastrophic. Mm. Uh, we were too young to understand. Mm. Mm. And so that's that's the other side of the coin. And as soon as the literature came into focus, even early on, maybe with the uh, Group 47 in Germany, that's when the first signs of remembrances and memories of the Holocaust came into focus. Well, the fairgrounds that he was the place that the Jews were interned on the other side of the river in Belgrade has never been marked as a, to my knowledge, as a uh, war memorial of any kind. And it was a fairgrounds, a kind of a business commercial fair before mm -hmm. World War II, and then became this, the pavilions were used to hold people. But I don't think that it's been, uh, he's worked, uh, attempted to get them to make it into a war memorial, but I don't think it has. There isn't a lot of awareness, even to this day, Rainer, in Serbia, about the fate of Jews. And in fact, that's why he in Serbia and he felt so strongly about writing that book in order to in order to uh, mm -hmm. communicate a little bit of that. And that there's a point at which he says that the inmates of the camp are looking across the river at Belgrade and feeling that people there just don't have any interest in what's happening to them. And, and I think that was a shocking thing for people to hear in Serbia when he yeah. wrote it. And I think we have a similar appearance and problem maybe right now i had an undergraduate class last semester and i asked something i said how many 
of you know something about the Holocaust. Half of them didn't. Okay, so that's that's the other side of the coin, where we right. failed in the educational system. Yeah. Paul Oster did a marvelous interview uh, for the German Die Zeit, the Times, and some of the insights that he gives gave me a better understanding of actually what was happening at the time in comparison to what's happening right now, because he looks, there was another article in the New York Times where the Germans look at the United States right now. And these are, these are important statements, and I think these are political statements, or these are concrete, real, real statements, but the novel was capable and is capable of creating the atmosphere because yes. people create to the atmosphere not to the facts hmm. people hmm. don't create to a summary exactly right. and that's that's what i think is the huge difference and the translation obviously has greatly supported that that you were able to recreate the atmosphere of the book or the atmosphere that was created in the book there are some marvelous moments in the book that I oh. still today remember the details. Well, thank you. I'm delighted to hear that. And as we're we're talking more about the political aspects of doing translation, of course, it's it's a it's a task, but it's very much a political action as well. And as I was reading through your bio, I hadn't been aware of this, but you spent six years as a translator and revisor for the ex-Yugoslav War Crimes Tribunal in The Hague. What was that experience like at the English Translation Unit, and, and how was that work different? Because I think that by this time you had already been back in the U.S., right? I didn't go. The first time I went there was 1990. I moved back to the States in 1990. So, uh, so I've been here teaching at Harvard, and then I took a year off, 99-2000, and then came back in 2005 and spent five more years there then and did some summers in between and so forth. But, well, it's a long story. It's hard to summarize in just a few words. It's it's very, I wrote a whole book about that. That's a different a different subject for a discussion. But we... The, the amount of scrutiny the translations that were produced by the English Translation Unit received, unlike any audience reception I've ever had, because <laughs> in the courtroom, the attorneys and everybody else in the courtroom, there's, there were always uh, probably 20, 30 people in the courtroom, maybe more, what with the accused and the uh, witnesses and the judges and the prosecution and the defense attorneys and so forth. And they all had computer screens in front of them. And on the left-hand side would be the original language of the document they were discussing. And on the right-hand side would be our translation produced by our unit and, and that had been uh, sort of supervised, the quality of it supervised by my group of five of us who were revisers. And so if an attorney needed, for example, to distract attention from his or her client in the box, then they would say, well, this word here, why that's an outrageous translation of that word. And said this, and there'd be this whole hullabaloo. We translators had mistranslated the document, but I would say probably at least in 80% of the cases, it was just an obfuscation strategy. And it's very interesting to see those or, or and, and also I think very importantly, and this happens anytime you have 
war crimes described in a courtroom, you're reducing atrocities to a discussion about language. And that's a huge event and, and a very um, disturbing event if it's being abused uh, badly by, the, by, the, by somebody in the courtroom. Uh, but in any case, that, that, was, that was what that was like. And, and so we, we thought very hard about how to translate things. And perhaps one of the tricky things that's really very different than literary translation is that many of the documents, and I would say our unit must have with, with outside uh, <clears throat> contractors as well as the 150 people working on documents and, and interpreting in the language unit, that, that we translated about a million pages of documentation for the courtroom over the 24 years of the work of the tribunal. And when uh, many of those documents had really obvious and deliberate use of ambiguity in the text mm. in order to sk skate over something that they didn't want to make too explicit. And we had to be careful that the translation expressed that same ambiguity one way or another, however we could mm. do it, because we couldn't choose to go this way or that way. We had to make sure the ambiguity was there. Well, that's when you go into the ambiguity of translations. That's when you get the beginning of the multiple translations. If you look at how many multiple translations we have at Dante, and uh, right. okay, well, we we... even even uh, even Neruda or Rilke, Rilke especially. I mean, there are translations one after the other, and I find that, from my point of view, an extremely helpful uh, tool to teach. Yes, it's always interesting to look at different translations. Yeah. So why do, why do you come up? Which is also then the representation and the intrusion of the translator and his or her perception of how she or he perceives it. I I, I see the uh, problem of translation, or I should preface this by saying, we're now in the academic world beginning to get a little recognition. We, because the academic world, especially some of the modern language departments, are not very favorably inclined toward translation. They tell me that you can't read a text in translation. Well, there's some truth in this, but I would not have been able to read a lot of major works from other countries, including today, if we didn't have the translation. And one part that I would like to really see developed is the reviewing of translation. It, it's interesting uh, that um, after we had our <clears throat> our life at, at UT Dallas for five years, Alta was a virtual organization until we were invited by the University of Arizona at Tucson to to affiliate with them and have our offices there. And they told me something very interesting when we talked about why this was advantageous for them to bring us on board, and that was that in their efforts to promote the humanities, they found that there was advantage to them uh, to have translation events, readings or discussions or panels or our conference held there frequently, uh, which would bring together their comparative literature department there. They have uh, Sonia Colina there's involved with interpreting their creative writing people. Uh, the modern languages and literatures departments all through the university and bring them all together in one place where they talk to each other because they felt that promoting that kind of communication across the humanities would be beneficial. And I was so interested and also translation as a discipline 
allows a wide range of involvement from somebody discovering that they could earn a little extra money as a translator while they're a student to people writing wonderful, playful, and in inventive comparative literature PhD theses using translation as a topic. And so there's, it's, it's a very flexible and, and uh, exciting discipline, and, and, and they're very interested in, in building on that. And I think you've already done that in, in Dallas, as far as I know, that's already been for a long time in Dallas. I think we could get to the point, and maybe we want to get to the point, that translation could be the foundation of an interdisciplinary way of studying the various disciplines, the various topics, because each each one of these areas is related to another area. And I think also we're getting more and more students interested. Uh, the students who did the creative writing, uh, excuse me, the creative dissertations, they have been very successful. Mm. Mm -hmm. And it's an area, especially now that the scholarly world has killed a lot of good thinking. It's not supposed to be repeated, but I do. And I think all theoretical questions should be anchored in the practice. Mm -hmm. That's what I also wanted to do when we had the ALTA conferences. And the ALTA conferences were mostly directed toward the practice, especially also the bilingual readings, they became very successful. Oh, and still are very successful. Yes. And uh, so uh, the one thing that I'm looking forward to is to getting more younger translators involved in the future, both in the representation and translation review, but also that we could find some of the younger translators to be represented on podcasts. Well, we're very glad that we've had, we've seen a real extension of attendance at our ALTA meetings, as I'm sure you've noticed, Rainer. We, we were having between 250 and 300 people coming to the annual conference for a long time, and now it's over 500. And uh, most of those are, most of the new people coming are graduate students or young professionals who are interested in translation. And the, right now we're in the middle of a, an election for the board. And if you go and look at the bios of the people running for the board, we have 15 candidates for five at-large positions. And I'd say, except for three, all of them are recent members. And that's very exciting for us. It brings yes. in a whole rich range of perspectives and, mm -hmm. and uh, the kind of diversity that we are really looking forward to encouraging within Alta. Yes, I think that's extremely important. And it was also from my point of view that two years before 2014, I decided that there had to be a change. I explained that at the Kansas City, Kansas uh, conference. And there comes a time that the new combinations, new interactions are at the forefront. And I think that's what's happening right now. With the Absolutely. And oh. in, in talking about changes, you know, since um, Ellen, since you took over as president of Alta, a lot has changed. Our world is completely different, and, and and that's you know to say the least. And how has all of these changes affected Alta? And how do you envision Alta at this moment? You know, in adapting to this new reality that we're living in. Well, the most dramatic and obvious change is that we decided a few months ago to hold the conference virtually because 
we simply couldn't ask our members to come to Tucson and deal with their own feelings of vulnerability flying or staying in a hotel. And uh, so we discussed this at length and, and there was both real sadness at the loss of community that we all enjoy so much when we get together and catching up with uh, attendees who are interested in the things we're interested in. Uh, but on the other hand, we saw it as an interesting opportunity because it's expensive to come to our conference. It's not too expensive to register. I think it's about $250, which isn't hugely steep for a lot of conferences, but you have to get there with a flight. You have to stay in a hotel, some kind of an accommodation while you're there. And a lot of people in Europe find that overwhelmingly expensive or in other parts of the world as well. And so we put out the word to colleagues all over the place in Canada, Mexico, Europe, Asia, to join us if they would like to and be involved in panels. And, and for example, Rainer, you were mentioning the bilingual readings. We have a lot of bilingual readings. I haven't had a chance to look at it. The schedule just came up, but there's going to be bilingual readings for two weeks before we hold the three days of the conference. Mm -hmm. And during that time, a lot of them will be both the author and the translator. And that's wonderful for us because they don't have to even be in the same place to make the recording. They can each obviously make it like this and uh, through through uh, Skype or Zoom or something and um, and send it to us. And so it allows us to showcase both the author and the translator in a way that we just it's much harder to do if both of them have to pay their full way to get there and stay mm -hmm. there at the conference. So we're hoping that the advantages we gain from that both will make this a, a very different, but an interesting and compelling conference and perhaps will give us some tools that we can mm -hmm. use in future in person conferences to include people who can't be there. And I think we're we're looking into ways that to, to incorporate that. And so in some ways, it's much as we're we're really sorry about the loss of community. We're hoping that this has other dimensions that will intrigue and engage our membership. And I think you're bringing up a very important point, and that is you save a lot of money because more people will become involved. You don't have to pay for the airline ticket. You don't have to pay for the hotel. You don't have to pay what I say these days if I invite something also for the meals. And uh, that sometimes can really go upwards more than you would like for it to be. And right now we are thinking of having conferences among the various translation centers in the world. Uh, I am developing a uh, direction of the digital translation technology. And some of my former students have written dissertations in that direction. And that that now is much more realistic. I can invite, if I wanted to, Michael Cronin in Ireland or somebody else who, wherever they are, and one can talk for an hour and it's very simple. Nobody has to move. I well, you know, I think everybody's gotten more comfortable dealing with these tools, with Zoom and everything. We've all been inducted into the Zoom generation <laughs> and, and here we are. So it's easier to ask people to do it who might otherwise not be so comfortable mm -hmm. with that. But I think it's also true that people who've been coming to Alta for a number of years really treasure the in-person aspect of it. And, and even people who are freelance translators who don't 
teach in academia or have other sources of income right. and therefore are not perhaps rolling in vast amounts of, of, of wealth, nevertheless, save all year so that they can come to the Alta Conference. Friends of mine, I, I did that, and friends of mine have told me the same, that, mm -hmm. they, that to them it's so important to have that personal contact and contact with publishers and all sorts of things that, that it's the central event of their year. And I think that that was true for the generation when Rainer started it, the founding generation, and it's still even among the middle and younger generation of translators that that, that has held true. People really find it valuable. So I don't think we'll have any trouble going back to an in-person conference as soon as that's possible. <laughs> well, as soon as nobody knows at this point, right now is the time to really create the future. Because in a moment of crisis, the old rules don't apply. Nobody can actually complain. And <laughs> that's very important because, especially in the academic world, one of the basic foundations of the academic world is to complain. <laughs> and, uh, which is true. Sarah may agree or may not agree, but that's the way <laughs> it is. And I am of the opinion right now is the moment to find the creative elements in the next generation to push it into the future and give them all the support we can. There's a wonderful series of conversations, if you're aware of it, that is coming out of Penn in New York and CUNY and Esther, Esther Allen and Allison Markin-Powell are running it every Tuesday and it's called Translating the Future. And it's mm -hmm. hour-long conversations with on various themes today was uh, translation communities and collectives, but they've had all kinds of different themes. And so it's an excellent example of precisely what you're talking about. Yeah, and we might tune into that too. Right now, we are at the beginning. From my point of view, it is a true coincidence that all of this happened and Sarah is responsible for it. <laughs> Because they had asked me to do a podcast for the Ackerman Center, which we did, which I did, and then I said to Sarah, "Do you have any idea what you do?" And she <laughs> said, "I have a video," and at that point, the video. I said, "Well, let's see the video," and the video was shown to me and Jai, my administrative assistant, and we thought it was excellent. Well, it was in June, so I said to Sarah, can I engage you in July? And here we are. And here that's we exactly are. Indeed. If you had <laughs> talked to me three, four months ago, I said, no, no. I had the idea three <laughs> years ago, but then it went bye-bye. And then she's basically responsible. As we're talking about looking into the future, what I wanted to ask, and this is one of my last questions, is what, what are your hopes for Alta in particular, but also for literary studies in general? As we are in the 21st century, most people, when they think of translation, they're thinking about Google Translate. Um, what are your hopes for the future of translation studies? Well, I'm excited to see the momentum we have going, I just hope it keeps going and expanding. I think diversification is what is the big step that comes next. We've been at Alta, we've been talking to the 
Native American communities of Arizona about getting involved. And our next, our next uh, keynote speaker will be Ophelia Zepeda, who is a uh, MacArthur Fellowship recipient and involved in Native American language uh, in studies at the University of Arizona, Tucson. But we've also been talking to Native American communities around the United States about bringing that dimension into things. And then, and then just diversification, there have been a few, this has already started happening. We've seen it both at Alta and also at the AWP where we have, Alta has five panels every year at the AWP, which are Alta dedicated panels and we run them and we approve the topics and then they're held there and they've been wonderfully exploratory of translating into a language that isn't one's native language. Interesting. And so we've seen quite a bit of that. And I think Alta is really fertile territory for that because of the last 20 years of the National Translation Award, I think we've had some maybe 40, 50 recipients altogether, uh, or you know, I'm not sure how many, but I know a third of them are people who were translating into English as a learned language rather than a native language. And I find that personally really exciting and uh, and demonstration that we're interested in all aspects of translation. And that is something I would see uh, grow and develop. And we have young translators, as Rainer was saying, to empower the younger generation who are very engaged in, there was a wonderful panel that Bruna Lobato organized uh, called Stepmother, Translate to One's Stepmother Tongue. And it was really fun and, and, and intriguing and rich. And I, it, you know, that's, that's what I want to see, a kind of a, a deepening and, and making more profound understanding of all the different aspects of translation and all the communities involved. I want Alta also be thinking at the forefront, and that's what Sarah was asking. What, what, how do you see the future? Uh, I say this little episode, when I first started in translation, I was very young, and I went to the Comparative Literature Association in Indiana, and I said I would like to talk about translation and the three in charge, then they told me they had nothing to do with what they were doing, and they called me the young push on, would I please leave? <laughs> that was my entrance into translation. That's well, it's, it's better now in Indiana than it was then, I can say. Well, yes, that, that was, a, that, I think it was, a, yeah, there was a conference, the AWP conference. Mm -hmm. But I but think you were, like, yeah, go ahead. What I was going to say, so it sounds like we will definitely be in touch as far as how we can create perhaps more of a collaboration with, you know, Translation Review and all the members and even to, I know that the conference will be starting at the end of September, if I'm not wrong. Yes, that's right. Mm -hmm. And maybe we could perhaps even invite some of the of the members who are at the forefront of their fields. I mean, you mentioned some really exciting, you know, things about the translation of Native American languages, which is something that I think it's so remarkable that, you know, that's a new area that seems to be also really vibrant at this moment. And so we will definitely, hopefully, uh, be in communication. Well, we're always glad to uh, be in communi any, any communication that we can. And perhaps one thing you might look at uh, is look at our, um, the people who are running for the board and read their little bios. Because as I said, and of our younger members among members of the board, people running for the board, and not all of them are going to get elected to the board because there's 15 candidates in five mm -hmm. spots. So it's a musical chairs 
exercise, but uh, we <laughs> we want to promote them all and uh, are very keen to, so take a look at them, look at their bios, see what it is they're interested in, and you might want to, if you need contact information for any of them, I can provide that, and perhaps that would give you some people to start with to talk to if you want to bring on board some younger committed Wonderful. translators, because they're, I mean, like, for example, Amaya Gabanjo is working from Basque, and she's very interested in the fate of uh, these small languages like that that are perhaps dying or, or struggling to keep going. And, and, and so she's been involved, you know, this is the year of Indigenous languages and the, the United Nations made it the year of Indigenous languages. And she has been very involved with that and was helpful to me to get in touch with Ophelia Zepeda because they were together at a conference uh, recently. And so, so people like that are, are full of excitement and, and good ideas and uh, enormous creativity. And, and when you asked where I see Alta going, that's where I see Alta going. I think that's what we... That is somewhat in line, which I offer, also foresee that I would like translation review, dedicate some special issues to what we would call the minor representations of countries. For bringing out right now, the next issue is a Korean special issue. Uh -huh. And I would like to see that eventually we could do something on uh, uh, Vietnamese writers and translators, et cetera, et cetera. And I think mm -hmm. it's very important since now the interaction is so much more evident than it was 20, 30 years ago. Dallas alone um, right. has 230 languages. Trainer, I presume that you follow Words Without Borders, and I also yes. would imagine that you have an eye on asymptote, because a lot of what you're describing, if you go to asymptote and look at their quarterly issues, they have a translator's note and that talks about the issues of translating the piece and some background plus the piece and and it's a, it's a lot of what you're talking about is that same sort of right involvement yeah well susan harris has done a very good job susan harris is terrific yes, yes. there's no question about oh it sounds like we have our work cut out for us <laughs> lots of great ideas um but we thank you so much for being with us today it has really been a wonderful time to be in conversation with you so thank you for being with us well, thank you for, for suggesting. Exciting to uh, talk about Alta, especially with Rainer Schulte here, who didn't intervene too often to tell me that what I was saying was wrong. So that's a good sign. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I wasn't about to. And, uh, one of these days, maybe we'll have a chance that we can invite you to come to the campus at UTD. Okay. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. A pleasure. Yes. Nice to meet you, Sarah. Bye-bye. Alles Gute für die Zukunft. <laughs> Whatever that means. <laughs> All right. Bye bye. Thank bye -bye. you so much. Bye bye. Thanks for listening. To learn more about the Translation Center, please visit translation.utdallas.edu and keep up with us on our social media accounts, which can be found on our website. Stay safe and take care. We'll see you next time.